Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2018. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, you may call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. Amen. The text this morning is from Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 20. These are the words of God. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations, incense is an abomination unto me, the new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth. They are trouble unto me, I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you, when you make many prayers, I will, not hear your, I will not hear your hands are full of blood. Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes, cease to do evil. Learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Our Father and gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you've given it to us and how you've preserved it down through history. I pray that your spirit would be present here in our midst today, taking this word and applying it to every area of our life which needs application. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus, and amen. Amen. So the message today is on what it means to be forgiven, what it means to be forgiven forgiven. When we are forgiven for our sins, there are two fundamental aspects to it. First, we are delivered definitively all at once in one fell swoop from the penalty of sin. We are freed from the penalty of sin. In the opening words of Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. We are freed definitively from any penalty of sin. Our sins and our lawless deeds, God will remember no more. They are forgiven, meaning they won't come up at all in the day of judgment. It means they will, they will not come up. They will not be thrown in your face. You will not be confronted with anything you have done if you are in Christ. So your sins are forgiven. You need to think about this as though the angel of the Lord himself was appointed to be the foreman of your jury, and he entered the heavenly courtroom, and he read out the verdict. Pointing to the altar where Jesus sprinkled his own blood, he says in a bright, clear voice that the entire cosmos can hear, not guilty. That is the sentence, not guilty. What were the charges? The charges were everything you'd done. The charges were all the sins, and the verdict is not guilty. This is forgiveness proper. This is forgiveness. Now, 
At the same time, we're also delivered from the power of sin, and that creates a theological problem for us, an intellectual theological problem that I hope to touch on in this message. There is a stark break with what you might call reigning sin. Before you're converted, uh, sin runs the show. Sin is in control. Sin is the old man, Paul calls it. The old man dominates. And so, reigning sin is crucified. Reigning sin is thrown down, Galatians 5.24. And then this is followed by a progressive and unrelenting campaign against all remaining sin. We can see that in Romans 8.13 and Colossians 3.5. And this is where the problem arises. When I say, if, you, if you're in Christ, there, your sins are forgiven. The sins you committed in the past, the sins you committed in junior high, high school, college, the sins you're committed, you committed last week, the sin perhaps you're in the middle of right now, and on top of all that, all the sins you're going to commit. The, the, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to every true believer, and so God deals with all of that. So God forgives all of it. There is no condemnation. There's nothing past, nothing present, and nothing future that can be laid to your charge if you are forgiven. Nothing. Now, that does create a problem. So what about this, what about this Christian who's sinning in this way and he's messing up his marriage? He's wrecking his marriage. What about this Christian who got fired from his job because he won't show up on time? And what about this Christian who was expelled from a Christian college because of cheating on a test? What, what, what about all that? Well, there's a distinction between the penalty of sin, being charged with the sin itself, and consequences of sin. If, if for example, you, someone shot somebody else and they're serving a life sentence in the penitentiary, and the chaplain comes and presents the gospel to them and they cry out to the Lord, and they are forgiven, they're completely entirely forgiven for everything, including the murder, they open their eyes after the prayer and they're still in the penitentiary. They're still there. Right, if a man and woman sleep together and she gets pregnant and they are both forgiven for it afterwards, that doesn't erase the child. That doesn't remove the physical consequences. But it does remove the, what you might call the um, judicial consequences. God does not hold that sin against you. What forgiveness is, to illustrate it on the human level, what forgiveness is, is when someone wrongs someone else, and then they go to that person and they say, I wronged you. I, what I did was wrong to you. Would you please forgive me? What they are asking for when they're asking for forgiveness is they're asking for the person who extends the forgiveness to make a promise. And the promise is, I will never throw this in your teeth. I will never confront you with this. What a, yeah, what about that thing you did to me that one time? I'm not going to do that. I promise not to do that. Now, let's say they get into a skirmish a few months later, and the person who forgave the other person breaks the promise and brings that, resurrects that old problem and says, yeah, well, that, remember the time you did that to me? And they're doing it in a way that there's an edge to it. They're saying, yeah, I'm, I'm still accusing you. The person who forgave them is breaking their promise. They're, they're breaking their promise, and they're holding it against them, which they promised not to do. And now they have to seek forgiveness for that. They have to, they have to put that right. Now, that, that means that when God forgives us, he, being the one who never, ever breaks his word, he never breaks his promise, that means for everyone forgiven, there is no condemnation, zero condemnation, no possibility of condemnation. And so... 
What's the problem? Well, the problem is I say we're, we're delivered from reigning sin, but we still are combatants when it comes to the battle with remaining sin. We're all tempted. We stumble in different ways. We have to put things right. How do, what category do I put all that in? When I'm struggling with sin, when I've got a besetting sin, when I've got a recurring temptation, how do I, what box do I put it in if, I'm, if, I, if I've been completely and totally forgiven why is this thing giving me so much trouble? Why, why is this thing uh, afflicting me if I've been completely and totally forgiven? What the message today is, you must struggle against remaining sin in the power of all your sins having been forgiven. If you are struggling against remaining sin in order to fix it, in order to make the problem somehow go away, then you're doing what you're doing in your own effort. So we're delivered from the power of sin, and, this, and, and we are engaged in an ongoing uh, battle of sanctification, dealing with remaining sin. In Colossians 3, which is one of the passages I, I cited there, in Colossians 1-2, he says that he's speaking to the saints in Colossae, faithful brethren, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. So he's talking to Christians, and he's talking to real Christians. He's talking to bona fide Christians, genuine Christians. Then in chapter 3, he says, mortify, put to death, mortify your members which are upon the earth. What, what might those be? Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, that's evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which sake uh, the wrath of God cometh, on, uh, cometh upon the children of disobedience. Now he's telling saints and faithful brethren not to do certain things. And the things he's telling them not to do are pretty gnarly things. They're pretty, they're pretty big ticket sins. For, you know, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil, concus evil concupiscence, and, and so on. Now, what does that mean? Well, Paul doesn't tell Christians to knock that off if there were no danger of people not knocking that off. Right, uh, saints and faithful brethren are tempted to do things like that. Saints and faithful brethren are tempted to do all kinds of things they shouldn't do. So what box do we put it in? Well, first, don't put it in the box of pedal harder. If you think of all of this, if you think of your sanctification as primarily a, a matter of your moral efforts at moral improvement, it is very easy to slip into a pedal harder approach in your sanctification. And that approach, faster, faster, pedal harder, work harder, grit your teeth, gut it out, that approach is deadly. That approach is going to wipe you out. You're not going to be able to do it. You're not going to be able to get anywhere. Paul says in Galatians 3, are you so foolish, having begun with the Spirit, are you now going to finish in the flesh? Are you going to be, are you, is God going to, were you so impotent that you couldn't even start the Christian race by yourself? And so the Spirit, when the starting gun went off, the Spirit enabled you to do that. And now you say, okay, you turn to the Spirit, okay, I got the rest of this. No, no, you, if you can't even start the race by yourself, you're not going to be able to run the race by yourself. Are you so foolish, having begun with the Spirit, are you now going to finish in, in the flesh? No, not at all. So, an ongoing experience of grace and a corresponding awareness, daily, constant, regular awareness that your sins are forgiven is the only way to keep your battle with ongoing temptations fresh. 
You're not going to be able to keep it fresh unless you're remembering your forgiveness. When someone is not really growing in grace, when a Christian is struggling with their their walk, they're, they're struggling with their sanctification, what is going on? One of the problems is forgetfulness of forgiveness. One of the problems is forgetfulness of forgiveness. Peter says this in 2 Peter 1.9. He's, he's talking about the believer who's adding virtue and knowledge and you know, perseverance and all these good things. This person is growing. This person is growing in grace. But what about the guy who isn't? For whoever lacks these qualities, he says, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. The reason you're struggling with this particular temptation today or tomorrow, with the reason this is such a bear, is that you're forgetting something. You're forgetting the fact that God has completely and utterly and totally forgiven you. Now, this is, why it's so this is why it's so important for Christians to live upright, moral lives from the standpoint of already having been forgiven. If you flip that and you say you must live moral lives and you're not remembering that you're forgiven, it's going to turn into one big self-improvement project. And you know what happens with self-improvement projects? Nothing improves. That's what happens with self-improvement projects. You can't do it. God has determined that in order for sinners to grow in grace, in order for sinners to become increasingly holy, they must be forgiven first. You have to stand on grace. You have to stand in grace in order to do the right thing. This is why Jesus says our righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. He doesn't say the Pharisees problem is that they're too righteous. He says the Pharisees' problem is that they're not righteous enough. And the reason they're not righteous enough is they can't be righteous because they're trying to do it by human effort. They're, they're going, as Paul uh, puts it, they're going about to establish their own righteousness. So don't ever forget that you have been forgiven. You've been forgiven for your sins. If you're in Christ at all, you are forgiven. And that means when you tackle a sin, when you tackle a temptation, you're tackling that temptation. You're, you're basically, you're going up into battle against an already defeated foe. You're going into battle against someone who's already defeated. Well, let's connect this to the first chapter of Isaiah. As a minister of Christ, speaking to you as a minister of Christ, the message I've been entrusted to deliver to you is a message of free grace, radical grace, and nothing but grace. All gift. All of it is gift. No place for boasting at all. By grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. Even that faith is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Nothing but grace, radical grace, free grace. Now the message of the cross of Jesus and the resurrection of this same Christ is a message of everlasting and undeserved kindness. That being the case, and because our thought processes are so corrupted by sin, we have a hard time getting our minds around exactly what God is offering to us. When God brings the gospel to us, when the evangelist brings the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ to us, we have a hard time understanding what precisely is being offered. 
In other words, sin gets into our thought processes. Sin gets into what we're thinking when someone preaches gospel to us. Either, the, here are the two ways we tend to go wrong. There are, more, there's, there are always plenty of ways to go wrong, but there are two fundamental ways to go wrong in this regard. Either we acknowledge that God is the only one doing the lifeguarding, all right, we're drowning in our sins, and we acknowledge that God is the only possible lifeguard, and so we then conclude that he must be saving us from drowning by leaving us on the bottom of the pool. God is the only one who saves us, and so he saves us from our sins by not exactly saving us from our sins. He saves us from the water by leaving us in the water. Right? So God is the one who saves, and so we say, mutter under our breaths, and so he doesn't really. Or we acknowledge that we must be saved from drowning by actually getting out of the pool, and then we conclude that in order for that to happen, we have to help the lifeguard do it. The lifeguard is not capable of saving us, and so we need to contribute something. We need to contribute our own efforts. And neither one of these things is true. God is the one who does all the saving, and he gets you out of the pool. And if you decided to help him, all you do is be getting in the way, like drowning swimmers frequently do, right? So being, being saved by grace means being saved by grace from the sin. It's not, and he starts by, by forgiving you uh, with regard to the penalty of the sin. It starts with forgiveness for the penalty of sin, but it doesn't stop there. He, it, involves, it, it, it involves and entails your entire life. Now, grace is first. Grace is foundational. Grace is the cornerstone. And I cited Romans uh, 6, 14. People, th that's where the phrase, um, we're not under law, but we're under grace, comes from. We're not under law, we're under grace. And people think that being under law means that you don't get to sin. You know, in the Old Testament, they were under law. God was strict back then. And because God was strict and they were under the law, they couldn't sin. But now we're under grace. We think God's lowered the bar. God's lowered the standard. And this is almost a photo negative of what Paul's talking about. Being under law does not mean you don't get to sin. Being under law means that you can't stop sinning despite the standard, and hence there's constant condemnation from the law. Being under law means being under condemnation. And when Paul says a few chapters later in Romans 8, when he says there's therefore no condemnation, he is saying that we're no longer under the law. So being under law means you can't stop sinning because of the sin nature. The law provokes it. The more the law tells you don't do that, the more you say, I'm gonna, and you continue to do it, and you're under condemnation constantly, and you oscillate back and forth between resolutions to do better and doubling down in your sin. That's being under law. Being under grace means, as, as it says in Romans 6:14, for sin shall not be your master, for you are not under law, but under grace. In other words, grace is liberation from sin. Being under law means in bondage to the law because you're in bondage to the sin. Now, I said that we want, God wants us to live morally upright lives, but he wants us to live morally upright lives because we have already been freed. He wants us to live morally upright lives because we have already been forgiven. Grace first, then we walk in the light of that grace. If you forget the grace first, all it's going to be is one torment after another.
And there are people, in, in fact, all of Romans 6 is written to address this. Well, if you preach free grace, if you just say, if you just preach free grace, then people are going to take advantage. If you preach free grace, people are going to say, oh, good, I'm forgiven for all my sins, past, present, and future. What time do you want to start uh, our bar tour tonight? What, what time should we go drinking? What time, you know, we, let's, let's, uh, let's schedule the orgy because we're all forgiven for our sins. Well, Paul says no. How's that possible? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Because the grace that God gives us that deals with the penalty of sin is a grace that simultaneously and also delivers us from the power of sin. How can we who've been, who are dead to sin still live in it? So being under law means being under condemnation for those sins that have you in bondage. Being under grace means that you are liberated from that. The grace of God saves us from it all. Now, consider how the prophet Isaiah sets this up. The prophet Isaiah presents this particular glorious reality in this way. First, he addresses the Jews under the figure of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah as, actually city, as actual cities, when Isaiah writes this, those cities are long gone. Those, those cities were buried under sulfur and brimstone centuries before. So he's not actually talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. He's talking to the rulers of the Jews of Isaiah's day under the figure of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is to say that when, he get, when we get down to uh, the, the offer of, though your sins be as scarlet, though your sins be as crimson, they're going to be white as snow. When we get down to that offer, that offer is being made to a people who are morally corrupt. They are grotesque. It's really bad. Right? So he says, woe to you, Sodom and Gomorrah, you rulers of Sodom and Gomorrah. Hear what I'm about to say. How would you like to be forgiven? That's what, he, that's, that's what this passage is all about. Now, not only were they as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah, but they then had extra layers of hypocrisy uh, put on top of it because they had all the mosaic uh, uh, ceremonial apparatus that they were pursuing. And so he addresses the Jews, Sodom and Gomorrah, listen to me, verse 10. He asked them first what their intentions were in bringing him all these sacrifices, verse 11. He asks them, sarcastically, who required you to show up here in my courts? Verse 12. This thing you're doing, who told you to? This thing you're doing, who told you to? This Lord's Supper you're observing, who told you to do that? And someone might say, well, you did. Right? I've, here's my Bible verse. These sacrifices that you're bringing, who told you to do that? Um, your servant Moses told us to do that. Is that all that Moses said? Or did Moses say other things as well about the way you do it? Right? Notice what the problem is. The problem is not the sacrifices. The problem is not the obedience. It's what they tried to mingle the obedience with. They tried to mingle the external obedience with internal disobedience. This thing you're doing, who told you to? He then tells them in verse 13 to pack up all their liturgical gear and get out. Get out of here. I don't want it. Get out. Solemn meetings, solemn meetings and iniquity do not go well together. God hates their religiosity. He hates their pomposity. He hates it. Verse 14. When they spread out their hands in a pious gesture, God turns away. Why? Because their hands are covered with blood. Verse 15. Their hands are covered with blood. I think periodically, um, 
and you've probably seen this as well. Um, periodically, they're, they're, I see in a Facebook feed or something, a bunch of mainline denomination ministers in their, in their regalia, in their robes and stuff, ga gathering together to bless an abortion clinic. Right? And they, they show up in robes and stoles, and here we are, ecclesiastical officials, and we're going to bless an abortion clinic. Why, why is God not listening to their prayers? Look at their hands. They're covered with blood. God says, I cannot endure that. I cannot stand that sort of thing. Their hands are covered with blood, verse 15. Repent, he says, turn away, learn a different way. Do it differently, verses 16 and 17. And then comes the glorious promise, the glorious invitation, a promise that only God could fulfill, verse 18. God makes them a most reasonable offer. He says, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though their sins be like crimson, they shall be like wool. God comes to, the, I mean, these people are awful. These people are as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah, which, which the cities of the plain were destroyed by fire from heaven. That bad, right? They were that bad that their cities were destroyed by fire from heaven. He addresses them that way. And on top of that, they compounded their perversions with their sanctimonious approach to God and in their liturgical devices. God hates it all. And then he says, and you get to the bottom line, therefore, what's God going to do? And we're expecting more fire from heaven. We're expecting, okay, and therefore, I'm going to destroy you just as I destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. But God says, no, your sins are like scarlet. I want them to be as white as snow. Though your sins are like, like crimson, I want them to be like wool. The sins were blood red. The salvation is blood red. And that means the forgiveness is pure white. The sins are blood red. The salvation is blood red. That means the forgiveness is pure white. And so in verse 19, he says, if you're willing and obedient, you will eat the good of the land. And if you're stubborn and kick at this, then you will be destroyed. Verse 20. In other words, when God makes this offer, why, why does it not happen? Why does someone with crimson or scarlet sins come and they leave and their sins are still scarlet and crimson? It's because they didn't want the deal. They didn't want it. They didn't want to get rid of their sins. They pretended to be sick of them, but they didn't, they, their sins are their precious. God says, look, I'll take all that away. In my grace, I will take all that away. And now we come down to the pinch point of all repentance. Do we really want it taken away? Do we really want our self-pity taken away? Do we really want our murmuring taken away? Do we really want our self-righteousness taken away? Do we, really, do we really want our own carnal wisdom substituted in for the word of God? Do we really want that taken away? And it turns out that many people don't want it taken away. But for all who hear the offer and have faith to receive the offer, God blesses them and he takes their sin completely and entirely away. Now, I mentioned earlier, there is, a, um, there is an intellectual theological problem associated with this, and here it is. Remember the issue with the horse and cart. A sheep bleats because it is a sheep and does so necessarily. But you don't become a sheep by bleating. That's not how people turn into sheep. That's not how coyotes turn into sheep. 
You don't become a sheep by bleating. An apple tree produces apples because it is an apple tree and does so necessarily. But a bramble bush cannot become an apple tree by growing apples. You don't, you don't see one bramble bush giving lessons to other bramble bushes on here's how to become an apple tree. Just grow three apples, that's the minimum. When you produce three apples, then we will call you an apple tree. That's not how it works. A person rescued from the bottom of the pool will be dried off, but we don't hand him a towel on the bottom of the pool. You cannot rescue yourself by drying yourself off underwater. And that's what all efforts at self-salvation are drying yourself off on the bottom of the pool. You, the, more you, the more you rub the towel, the more the towel gets wet. So what does it look like? Sheep, sheep, well, sheep will bleat, apple trees produce apples, rescued people from drowning get, get dried off and breathe, breathe the air. What are forgiven people like? Forgiven people forgive. Forgiven people forgive. This is simply a description of what it is like. This is just what happens. Forgiven people forgive. Luke 6, 37. Judge not and you shall not be judged. Condemn not and you shall not be condemned. Forgive and you shall be forgiven. Ephesians 4, 32. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. God has forgiven you, you forgive one another. God has forgiven you, and if he has forgiven you, then we, we can readily identify that that has happened. Why? Because you're magnanimous, you're tolerant, you're forgiving, you overflow in forgiveness toward others. This is how absolute forgiveness, this is how absolute grace is simultaneously absolute grace free grace, radical grace, and at the same time is morally rigorous. This is because God does not just give us cleansing from the defilement of sin. He also liberates us from the power of sin to defile. And one of the central defilements of sin is the refusal to forgive others. What is, what is the central sin? What is the great sin? What is the king sin? It's not doing meth, right? It's not fornication. The king of sins is pride. Pride, self-sufficiency, I can do it myself, and I'm in charge of what happens around here. That person, that person is not going to get forgiveness because they sinned against me and they don't deserve it. That, is, that kind of pride is something that indicates, it manifests, that the person involved hasn't received what they're refusing to extend. They've not received from God what they're refusing to give to someone else. So someone who does not forgive others is someone who is demonstrating a profound spiritual cluelessness. In his grace, God not only gives us forgiveness to cover sin, he also gives us forgiveness to cover the sins of others. God gives us the forgiveness to cover our own sins, and he gives us forgiveness to cover the sins of others. He gives us more grace than we thought, not less. So do not be like the foolish slave in that parable who had his debt of millions forgiven and then tried to choke a fellow slave over pocket change. What has God forgiven you? Tally it up. What has God forgiven you? And what have you been asked to forgive of anybody else in this room or anybody outside this room for that matter? What you've been asked to forgive others for is pocket change 
compared to what God has forgiven you for. God has forgiven you millions. And then when God says, you're forgiven, and you say, oh, great, great deal, and you meet somebody that owes you a quarter, and you start to throttle them because they owe you a quarter, what is that demonstrating? That, that is demonstrating that you do not understand the concept. Because if God gave you forgiveness actually, you would have, you'd be running a surplus, and you'd, be, you'd have more than enough to share. So be mindful, first, of the relational structure of forgiveness. God always gives forgiveness and enough to spare. When God gives forgiveness, he doesn't just barely eke it out. When God gives forgiveness, he gives you forgiveness and enough to spare. He gives you enough to share. If you don't have enough to share, then this is evidence that you don't have any at all. Because if God gave it to you, you've got enough to share. If God gave it to you, there's enough and to spare. So, with that caution noted, notice how, how we think, oh, if he's not producing apples, he's not an apple tree. If he's not forgiving, if he's not forgiving, he's not forgiven. That makes us think, oh, well, he needs to grit his teeth and crank out some forgiveness pronto. Because if he doesn't crank out the forgiveness pronto, then he's not forgiven, right? But we're, notice we're sneaking in self-salvation. We're seeking in self sneaking in self-salvation, self-righteousness again. What we need to understand is this is what it looks like when God forgives. When God forgives, this is what it looks like. And if it doesn't look like that, then God didn't do it. But the fact that God didn't do it doesn't mean that you can step in and do it yourself. You can't, right? You need, to, you need to recognize that if God hasn't, you know, if I'm just full of malice, if I'm just full of hatred, if I'm just full, if I'm just overflowing with a lack of forgiveness toward everybody, if I just don't forgive the world, I don't forgive anybody, I don't forgive the slow driver in front of me, I don't forgive the people who change lines in the bank or the post office, I don't forgive anybody for anything. If that's the way you are, then you need to say, I wonder if I'm forgiven. But you can't grit your teeth and say, I, now I'm going to forgive people so I can earn forgiveness. You can't earn forgiveness. But if free grace forgiveness is given, this is what it looks like. What does it feel like? Now, with that warning registered, and with that particular kind of moral blindness challenged, what is it like for a believer who has experienced the complete and entire forgiveness of God? I want to remind you first, you have to realize that the experience of being forgiven the experience of being forgiven for your sins is a reality, is the reality that comes from the outside ourselves. We do not generate it. We do not manufacture it. We do not simply realize it. It's not a self-realization thing. We do not come up with it ourselves. Our new status, that of being cleansed, that of being put right, that of being declared perfectly righteous, is a reality that comes to us from Christ. Our righteousness is grounded in realities that were manifested in Israel 2,000 years ago. Christ walked through Israel, healing the sick, living a perfect life of, of obedience, and that perfect life of obedience is imputed to you, credited to you. Christ died on the cross for our sins. That reception of God's punishment, chastisement for sin, is credited to you. That is the gospel. Your salvation, your forgiveness comes to you from outside yourself. Isaiah 54, verse 17. 
No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Righteousness, any righteousness that anyone in this room has, comes from outside. It comes from outside ourselves. It comes from Christ. So, our forgiveness is objectively grounded. What does it feel like subjectively? The fact that it it, it's the fact that God initiates from outside doesn't mean that it whistles over our heads. We, it, it's internalized. I'm, I'm preaching an objective Christ, but I'm also preaching a felt Christ. What does it feel like subjectively? When objective forgiveness is granted to sinners, it has subjective consequences. What does it feel like to be forgiven? It is as though God were to take a hot and soapy sponge and run it over every square inch of your internal gunk. There is not one filthy spot left. Isaiah 43, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions. Notice how God speaks. I, even I, am he. How do I identify myself? I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions. That's what God does. He blots out transgressions, and he will not remember thy sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. So God blots out transgressions, and he doesn't remember. Now, this remember what I said about forgiveness. This does not uh, disrupt or put little blank spots in God's omniscience. God, you know, if God could not know forgiven sin, there's a great deal of human history that he would not understand. What, you know, what's going on there now, right? Um, God cognitively knows everything that happens, but he, he forgets in the sense of nothing between. There's n there is nothing that you have that's being held, that you've done that is being held against you by God. He forgets it in that sense. So, not only does he cleanse us from all unrighteousness, there is a glorious element of blood-bought forgetfulness. Isaiah says, will not remember thy sins. In your prayers, in your prayers, when you bring up again, uh, how many times have you had a troubled conscience at two in the morning? And so in your prayers, you bring up again how you yelled at your kid or how you cheated on that test in high school or, or how you lusted after your neighbor's wife or you envied the success of your older brother. You were lazy in that job that demanded hard physical work, and you bring it up again, and you've brought it up a hundred times. You've brought it up a thousand times. You need to think of God looking at you as much as to say, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. In terms of my relationship with you, there is nothing between me and you, and you have to stop acting like there's something between me and you. God, this is what God forgetting your sin means. It doesn't mean that God's omniscience is diminished, but it does mean that he, that the obstacle you feel between God and yourself is not an obstacle that he is, he's not dealing with that at all. And as if that were not enough, we are given other glorious images of this. Who is a God like the Lord? There is no other God like him. Why? Because we serve and worship a God who pardons iniquity. We serve and worship a God who, when confronted with the transgression of his heritage, walks right by it. All right, you're, you're really aware of that thing you did, right? 
That thing you did, you'd be mortified if anybody else knew about you. That thing you did, it's a big smoking pile. And you're, it's right there, and God's coming. Go quick, God's coming, and he walks right by it. He walks clean by it. He's not a God who's just okay with mercy. God is not just okay with mercy. The prophet tells us that he delights in mercy. This is all in the prophet Micah. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity? This is Micah chapter 7. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever. Why? Because he delighteth in mercy. God delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea, a thing that God delights to do. God delights in mercy. Now I'm speaking, when we speak of God in this way, we're speaking in anthropomorphic ways, obviously, right? But when God forgives a sinner, when God forgives a repentant sinner, when you come to him with a contrite heart, you are making his day. He delights in it. He wants it. He leans into it. He, he, <laughs> he throws your sins into the depths of the sea, and it's a glorious thing for him. It's a glorious thing for us also, right? It's a delightful thing for us to have our sins forgiven, but remember, your forgiveness is delightful to God as well. Notice what, God, what else God does according to Micah. He takes our sins. How many of them? Well, Micah says all of them. All your sins. And he plunges them into the depths of the sea. To take an old Navy expression, he deep sixes them. God deep sixes them. Over the, overboard and they're gone. They're at the bottom. Of the, where are your sins right now? All those things you've done. Where are they right now? They are at the bottom of the ocean. They will never be heard from again. Does any creature at all know about them? Now, maybe some blind deep sea critter will swim by them not knowing, but that's the extent of it. We have to reckon with the force of this illustration. Your sins are gone. Your sins are gone. One last illustration, and I trust the last illustration will bless your soul also. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west, how far is that? If you go north long enough, at some point you're going to find yourself going south. There's, if you keep going north, you can't keep going north. If you keep going north, you're going to go south. And if you do that long enough, you're going to head north again. But if you head due west, there will never be a time when you find yourself going east. If you head due west, that's just the way it is. You could go due west if God gave you the energy and, and the time and the commitment and the ignorance to wonder why this is important. <laughs> you, could go, you could go west forever. There will, never, there will never be a time when you find yourself going east. That's how far east and west are from each other. You're going to be going constantly west. As Kipling put it in a completely different context, east is east and west is west and never the twain shall meet. Your sins are gone. How far has God removed your sins from you? 
The answer provided in these illustrations from the prophets has a straightforward point. Your sins are gone far enough that you will never, ever encounter them again. Your crimson sins are now white. Your bosom sins are now light years away. Your besetting sins have lost their grip on you. Your regrets have gone deep sea diving. Someone cut the rope and they are now lost somewhere on the bottom. Your bad and pernicious habits have, like Pharaoh's army, got drowned. One last point to make, and this is the ultimate point. This is the final point. This is the point that ties everything together. The only way for your sins to be that far away is for the Christ who carried them that far away to be close to you. In order for the sins to be that far away, Christ must be close. And there's a mystery here. Christ is the one who bore our sins. Christ is the sin bearer. Christ is the one who was made sin on our behalf. So if that sin bearer is close, then the sins themselves are the utter opposite of close. So hear the good news. If Christ is absent, our sins are not absent. But if Christ is present, then our sins are necessarily absent. If Christ is present, our sins are necessarily absent. And how is Christ present? Christ is present in the word proclaimed. He is present in this message. Christ is present in the word inscripturated. Christ is present in the word that is bread and wine. And Christ is present in the form of his spirit who is in you. Christ is present. But all of these things have to be apprehended. It's not just enough for Christ to be present. You must apprehend him as present, and he is apprehended as present by evangelical faith. You've heard the word proclaimed, and you believe. You read the word as it's written in scripture, and you believe. You, you taste, and, and you taste the bread, and you drink the wine, and you believe. Or you believe the objective gospel. And if you believe the objective gospel, your sins are gone, gone, gone. Our Father in God, we thank you for your kindness to us. We pray that you would bless us as we meditate on these things and as we try to um, figure out how to apply them to our lives and figure out how to walk in the light of your grace. Isaiah 55 says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good. Let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear, and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. The point here is not whether you eat bread or drink water, the point is not whether you eat steak or drink fine wine. The point is whether your soul is really satisfied. The point is whether your soul can find any joy. And Isaiah says here that the source of real delight, real satisfaction, is found in listening. The only price is inclining your ear. If you listen, the food is free. If you listen, it's all you can eat. If you incline your ear, the food will satisfy your soul. This is why you often 
hear us remind you that the word goes together with the sacrament. If you don't hear the word, if you don't listen to the word, the food cannot satisfy. But if you hear the word, if you believe the word, if you listen and incline your ear, you will eat and your soul will live. There's nothing magical in this bread. This is just normal wine. But when we listen to the word of God, when we love the word of God, what we hear is the declaration of an everlasting covenant, the sure mercies of David in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. He died to take away our sins. He died and rose again to make all things new. When you hear that and you believe that, this table is the promise of that. This table is that promise for you to eat and drink freely. So are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Are there things in your life that need to be made new? Come, everyone who thirsts, and you don't need any money. All you need are ears. All you need to do is listen. All you need to do is hear. And when you eat this food, you're eating the promises of God, the sure mercies of David, and your soul will delight in fatness. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. In the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks, so let's give thanks together. Our God and Father, we praise you and we thank you for the sure mercies of David that you have revealed in the greater David, your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that in him you have bestowed upon us an everlasting covenant in which you have removed our sins as far away as east from west. Father, we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name, and amen. amen. When you hear a message like that, there's, you feel like there's not much to say. You sort of just stand there. And so that's the charge. Stand there. Stand there in that grace. Stand there in the kindness of your God, his mercy, his delight over you, his joy in you. Stand there. Walk out of here in it. Walk into it tomorrow and the next day. It's an everlasting love. It's an everlasting grace. Stand there in it. He delights in you. Receive the blessing of your God now. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundant above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. And amen.